1 Corinthians 2.9 tells us, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. And we have been talking, especially the last couple weeks, about some of those specifics, about some specific examples of these spectacular truths and realities that await all who truly do love God, who have come to Him by faith and trust in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus. We've seen through John's eyes, as it were, as he saw and wrote about the new heavens and the new earth, the reality that those are a real, literal heavens, brand new sky, brand new atmosphere, brand new, literal, physical earth. Then he saw the new, heavenly, holy city, Jerusalem, perfect in every way, coming down out of heaven, showing us that God's intention, His desire, His plan is always to be with us. And so in New Jerusalem, we see a physical example of the reality of Emmanuel. That God is a God who always desires to be with His people. And we saw some of the aspects of this New Jerusalem. Its beauty, its majesty, its perfection, its holiness. And John was just astounded to the point where God had to tell him, hey, keep writing. Keep writing. Don't stop. I want you to write this down. I want this to be recorded. I want everybody to see and and get a glimpse of what you're seeing. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. And so as we've covered those things, the statement, all good things must come to an end, applies for this series and, and this study. Thankfully, it does not apply to the things we've been talking about and looking at in this study because the good things that await us will never, ever come to an end, and there is our hope. But as we wrap up this series that I pray has been impactful and even life-changing for you, I want to draw your attention to Revelation 22 once again as we finish the overall series, What Revelation Reveals, and as we wrap up the specific focus that we've been in now three weeks, the end is the beginning. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 4 is where we'll start our focus. Revelation 22 and verse 1. John, after he has seen, as we talked about last week, the zoomed-in type approach to the New Jerusalem, and he saw the details, he saw the walls, he saw the, the streets, he saw the gates, he saw all these incredible things. That continues, and he writes this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This river of the water of life, this this bright, crystal clear river that's flowing not like you would expect from another source of water, 
it's flowing from the throne of God the Father, the throne of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. I mean, that should strike you as odd, as an interesting thing to see. You'd expect a river flowing from some other spring of water, right? Some other body of water. Not from a throne, but that's what John sees. So what is, what is that conveying to us is the question we have to ask. When you see things like that in Scripture, things that just seem out of place for us, things that seem striking, you should stop and you should focus and say, okay, what's this all about? That's what we're going to do just for a minute. We're going to pause right here, even though we just started, and we're going to say, okay, what is that conveying to us? What does that communicate? What, what is that all about? Well, I want to go ahead and give you the answer, and then I'll back up that answer, okay? Uh, this incredible scene that John is seeing, whether that's literal or symbolic, really doesn't matter uh, because it points to the same reality. This river of the water of life that's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb is symbolizing the Holy Spirit, symbolizing the Spirit of God. So you have in in beautiful display, just like it's happened throughout the entire Revelation, you have the Trinity on display. You have the throne of God the Father. You have the throne of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, His Son. And in the middle of that, flowing from that, Pictured in this, as this water of the river of life, you have the Spirit of God. And here's, here's how we can um, know that that's what's being pictured and symbolized and pointed to. Uh, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. You're certainly free to. But in John chapter 7, verses 38 through 39, the Lord Jesus is speaking, and he says this, John seven thirty-eight: The one who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And, you could add because of that, not yet been sent by Jesus or by his Father. The reason I say that is because in John 15, 26, Jesus, again speaking of the Holy Spirit, says this, When the Counselor comes, that's another title of the Holy Spirit specifically, when the Counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So take those passages in mind, the Spirit who will uh, give, as it were, springs of water deep within a person, the one who is going to be sent by Jesus from the Father, tie that all together with what we just saw along with John, as it were, as he saw and, and wrote this, this river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and I hope and I think you will see uh, pretty clearly that that's showing us the Spirit of God and His activity and His ministry in the life of the believer. Beautiful, isn't it? A, just a beautiful picture and a glorious reality. Then verse 2, John continues and he sees that this, this river of the water of life, it flows from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street. Look at verse 2 with me. 
Revelation 22, verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city, this river comes. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And here's another place to just put on the brakes really quick. Because that word healing, if we're not careful, that can confuse us and throw us off. Because think about it. What is John seeing? What is he writing about? What have we been talking about the last couple weeks? The perfect, holy, new Jerusalem. We're talking about heaven on a new earth. We're talking about uh, all that has been so horrific for all of us for thousands of years up to the point where all that was done away with being done away with. I mean, we, we've said there's no more sickness. There's no more death. There's no curse. Right? We've talked about that. The new heavens and the new earth are free of the affliction of sin and sickness and death. So if all of that has been done away with, if there's no more sickness, there's no more crying uh, associated with sickness and pain, there's no more crying associated with grief. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. All those tears are done away with. Death is no more. Then a good question to ask, a fair question to ask is, what in the world is there need for healing of the nations? Why, why is that mentioned here? And it's, it's the answer to this question that I want to provide for you because that word healing, as so often happens, as we read God's Word, and we're in the Old Testament where the Hebrew is, or we're in the New Testament where the Greek is the original language, and we, we read it in our English and we realize that's been translated, what often happens is the translation just does not carry the original meaning, or it certainly doesn't do it justice, and that's the case here. So when John writes that the leaves of this tree, the tree of life, that are, that's on either side of this river of life, when it yields this, this fruit, these 12 kinds of fruit each month, which, by the way, shows us that there's going to be a calendar, there's going to be time in this new reality, in eternity. The leaves of this tree, he says, were for the healing of the nations, and that word, our word, our English word, healing, in the original Greek that this was written in, the word is therapeian. Therapeian. And that should sound pretty familiar to you. There should be another English word that just jumps off the page at you when you, when you realize, oh, that, that's therapeian. Somebody tell me. Just shout it out. What is it? Therapy or therapeutic. Right, exactly. That's where we get our English word therapy or therapeutic. It's from the Greek therapeian. And therapeian means, and especially in this context, it means care for, it means service or serving, and it means constant health-giving or health-enhancing. So with that in mind, I think you start to see what's really implied here when John used that word. It's not health-giving in the sense of because there's going to be sick people on the new earth and in the new Jerusalem, 
because there's going to still be some sort of disease crop up, because there's going to be plague and affliction, God's going to have to provide healing for all the people that live on this new earth and new Jerusalem. That's not at all. That's not at all the case. God wasn't lying when He said to John, all those former things are going to be done away with. All the former things will have no place in this new reality. All those former things that all mankind struggled with from Adam and Eve and the curse and the fall on, all those things are finally going to be finished. It wasn't false hope. It wasn't God messing with John and by extension all of us. He meant what he said. Sickness, grief, hardship, death, all of that really will be finished. And it will not in any way be present in the new eternity, the the new existence in eternity, the new reality, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. We won't have to deal with all those things. So this, this healing that's provided and connected with the leaves of this incredible tree of life, it's for our, our therapeutic use. It's, it's going to be somehow, as only God knows, it's going to be somehow used to enhance the life that we will be able to experience perpetually for all of eternity. It's going to be for our care It's going to be for our service. It's going to be for our joy. Not for some sort of physical uh, health-giving property. So I wanted to clear that up. And and I just want to point out a couple more things about this this, uh, concept of this healing of the nations associated with the leaves on this tree, this this therapeutic benefit. Uh, There's two things that jump out at at me, especially when you know that this word um, denotes serving or caring for. And so if God is providing this, he's providing this tree of life, and he's using the leaves of these trees to care for and serve, doesn't that just go right along with everything you, you know about God and everything that he reveals about himself in his word? I mean, that's the God we have that over and over and over, all throughout our history, even though we rebelled against Him in the garden, over and over, He just continues to care for us, to serve us, to provide for us what we need. And so here in eternity, He's doing the same thing. He's saying, I've given you now, I've given you eternity. I gave you my Son, and through Him I give you eternity. I give you this incredible new reality, this new heavens and this new earth. I've given you freedom from sickness and death and all that affliction, but I'm going to still give you what you need. I'm going to give you all that you could possibly need. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to serve you. Incredible. The other thing that comes to my mind as I see this tree of life and these this fruit and the leaves of the tree giving this therapeutic, perpetual, uh, life-giving essence. I think what that's going to do for us, I think that's going to remind all of us for all of eternity that there was another tree that was a source of life for us. I think it's going to point us back to the cross of our Savior, and 
remind us that only because of what happened on that tree, only because of that, do we have the reality of life. Only because of that do we have access to eternal life. I think that as we will, in the eternal state, enjoy the fruit of that tree and and we take the leaves of that tree and we somehow are enhanced in our eternal experience, I think our minds will be completely, constantly connected to that other tree that made what we're experiencing possible. Let's keep going in this incredible um, continued revelation that John provides uh, as, as we go forward in this vision that he had and, and we go forward in our understanding of what awaits us, uh, what is, is truly going to be starting uh, for us once the end of all that we have experienced as, as a hum- human race, once it's all over and done with. Um, this, this tree of life, this was something that appeared at the very beginning of all of our story. This is what appeared at the beginning of history. In the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of life. And man's access to the tree of life was cut off, I'm sure most of you will remember, because of their sin. When man and when Adam and Eve, mankind sinned, when they chose to rebel and eat of the, the tree of the the fruit of the tree that was forbidden to them, uh, all all of it changed and there was uh, an angel put in front of the tree of life and Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and there was a, a constant angelic guard against that tree and there was a flashing sword that went back and forth. And you read in the account there in Genesis of that and you're tempted to think, wow, man, that's, that's really harsh. That's terrible. But what we need to understand is the cutting off of the tree of life and the access to the tree of life, it was an act of mercy. It was an act of mercy. Because right before God expels Adam and Eve from the garden, right before he posts this angelic sentinel there, he says, we've got to do something. In the council of the Trinity, you see this, this conversation taking place. And he says, we've got, to, we've got to do something to intervene because now in their fallen sinful state, if they were to take hold of the tree of life and live forever... And then it just cuts off because it's as if God just can't even entertain for a moment the thought that His creation would be doomed to an eternity in their rebellion, in their sinful state, without an intervention. Without an intervention. So in an act of mercy, He expels them and He puts this guard in front of the tree of life so that they can't live forever as they are right then and there in their sinfulness, in their rebellion. So in the Garden of Eden, man's access to this tree of life was cut off because of their sin. In the New Jerusalem, which we're looking at now and seeing, in the New Jerusalem, the tree of life will always be accessible because of the salvation provided for man. And that was certainly an act of grace. So at the beginning, you have an act of mercy in cutting us off from it, In the New Jerusalem, because of what Jesus accomplished, you have an act of grace that makes it always accessible. My friends, what I want you to know is that we will have access to the tree of life because our Savior hung on a tree of death. 
That's what we've got to, we've got to remember. We've got to make that connection. So as you read this account and you, you read John describing this, this tree of life with its continual life-giving properties and its therapeutic value and, and all of this restored from Eden, we've got to make that connection. That if you're in Christ, you will have access to this tree of life. But it won't be because of anything you have in yourself. It won't be because of any intrinsic value. It won't be because you're just that good. We have access to the tree of life because our Savior hung on a tree of death. And because He did, because He did, that tree of death became a tree of life for us. Galatians 3.13 tells us this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's what Jesus did for us. He became a curse for us because He was hung on a tree, a tree of death, for Him that became a tree of life. Back in Revelation 22, John writes this, so he's seen this, this incredible river of life, this crystal water of life coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb and coming through the middle of the city. And he's seen the tree of life. And he says this, verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed. Why? Because of what I just, just had you look at with Galatians 3.13, what I just mentioned. Because Christ became a curse for us. That's why there's no longer anything accursed. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Your Savior and mine, the Lord Jesus, became a curse for us so that the curse could be lifted from us. When Jesus went to the cross, He didn't just take our sin. He did. He took that, our sin on Himself and He went to the cross and He received the cup of the wrath of His Father on that sin in our place, that cup of wrath that should have been poured out on you and me. He took, but He didn't just take all of that. He became the very curse of God on sin so that it could be lifted away from us so that what John witnessed and what he wrote about could be possible. It all took place there, on the cross, that, that focal point that we see every single Sunday morning that we sing about and that, let's just be honest, we take for granted. We take for granted the cross of Christ. Don't you think that's true? I know it's true in my life. I take it for granted all the time. I can get so comfortable with the cross when in fact there's nothing comfortable about it. There was nothing comfortable, uh, comfortable about it for our Savior. There's nothing comfortable about the cross for those who follow the one who went to the cross. And we, when we're comfortable with something, when we get accustomed to it, it loses its value, right? It, it ceases to be something that is precious to us or is treasured by us. We do this with all kinds of things in life. But what we need to make sure we do, Christian, 
follower of the Christ who was on the cross. What we need to do is guard our minds, guard our hearts, and ask the Holy Spirit to prevent the cross of our Savior from ever, ever becoming just this afterthought to us. Because the cross of Christ is everything. And that's not just a cliche. It's everything for us here and now in our life as we know it, as a Christian. It's everything for us as we go through the Christian life in this life. And it's everything for us in the life beyond. It's everything for all of eternity. I mean, the very fact that there is a tree of life in the new Jerusalem, in this heaven on earth, the very fact that it gives fruit and gives life that will somehow be for our good for all of eternity, it's all because of that other tree. The tree that our Savior willingly hung on, the tree that made Him a curse for us, that enabled the curse to be lifted from us all about the cross. Have you come to that cross? That's my question for you before we go forward. Before we go any farther, have you come to the cross of Jesus and looked upon Him there believing He was there for you? And believing that only by Him being there for you, dying the death that you should have died, only by that will you have life. Have you ever come to the point in your life where you've done that? Where you've believed that? And where you have surrendered to the person and the work of the Christ who is on that cross? If not then I believe you're here today for that very purpose. I believe that if you are here and you've never come to that point of acceptance and of surrender, personal acceptance and personal surrender, that you're here so that you can do that. And I would encourage you to do so. I mean, you don't even have to wait to the end of this message and of the service. You can right now where you are say, yes, I believe. I believe, Jesus, that You came to the cross for me. I believe You took my sin on Yourself. And I believe You became the curse for me. And I believe You gave me life by giving Your life for me. Here's my life. I give it to You. Revelation 22, verse 4. So he's seen as he's continued to kind of be, he's given this, this zoomed-in view even more, even more than what we looked at last week, and he's seen this throne and the, the river of life coming out of the throne, symbolizing the Spirit, and he's seen the tree of life on either side, and he's, he, he knows that there's, there's just no longer any curse at all because Jesus has made that possible. Here's the other thing that Jesus has made possible. Verse 4, They, all that are in the New Jerusalem, all the people of God, he says this about them and their reality, our future reality for us who are in Christ, they will see His face. They will see His face. 
face. Who is the His? It's God. They'll see God's face. All who are here in this, this incredible new heavenly reality, this heavenly city that is on earth, this new creation, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. In a great contrast to what happened long before this account. We didn't spend time in this. We, we skipped ahead really to the end. But in great contrast to what will happen to all those who are uh, identified and aligned with the Antichrist when he is on earth, before all of that's done away with, uh, he will put his, his identification, his number, his name on the foreheads of all who uh, swear allegiance to him. What a great contrast here that God will put His name on, on the foreheads of all who are His, which will be a proof of ownership for all of eternity. All made possible, all made possible because of Jesus. You know, Moses was told when he said to God in a, in a very pure desire, he said, just please show me Show me your your glory. Show me your essence. Show me. Let me see without anything covering. Let me see all that you are. Show me who you are. Show me me your face. Show me everything about you. And Moses was told that no man can see God and live. Moses was told that in response. Moses was told that no man can see God and live. But Jesus... Jesus made it possible to see God and live with Him forever. So that desire that Moses had, that he was told no to, was given a resounding and an eternal yes in the person and the work of Jesus. Matthew 5.8 tells us this in, in his great, great sermon on the mount, uh, no doubt his most famous sermon, Matthew 5.8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, which only Jesus can accomplish. Only Jesus can make a person pure in heart, and therefore only Jesus makes it possible to see God the Father. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That was His promise. And that's what He alone makes possible. Do you know this one? this great one who, who alone can make it possible for you to be, in, be pure in heart. I mean, really pure in heart. Purity as God defines purity. Do you know the one who makes that happen? Only Jesus can do it. Nobody else can. You can't do that for yourself. I can't do that for you. No one in your family, no amount of coming to church, no amount of of even reading Bible verse after Bible verse and memorizing them, none of that will do that for you. Only Jesus and His pure blood shed for you, covering you, can make you a sinner full of of a blackened, horrible, rebellious heart Only He can make that heart a pure heart. Only He can change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Are you known by Him? If not, then today is the day of your salvation. 
I want to move ahead in this chapter and look at verse 16. Revelation 22, verse 16. Revelation twenty-two, sixteen. And now we hear from the One Himself, the One who's been revealed from the very first statement of this great book. Remember, Revelation is at its core at its foundation and at its essence and purpose, a a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave to His servants. It's all about Jesus. John saw Jesus at the very beginning, and now he hears from Him, and by extension, so do we. The narration shifts. And it's Jesus and it's John dictating what he says. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. For you and me. For you and me. That's why this was written. That's why it was recorded. I am the root of and descendant of David. So he's saying, I am the source of David's kingdom. I am the source of all the lineage of of Israel's history and all of the kingship. I'm the one who established David. I'm the source of, of all of his greatness. And I am the descendant. In other words, he's saying, I am the God-man. I am the one who established David and gave him his kingdom. I'm the one he looked to. I'm the one he worshipped. I was his God, the source of his life. And by coming as Messiah, by becoming a human, a man, I am in the direct lineage, the royal heritage of David. So he's truly, uniquely qualified to be the divine king. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star, something reserved for only God. Verse 17, both the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, which, by the way, is all of us. All of humanity is thirsty for what only Jesus provides. We're all thirsty. We all have a deep sense of and an awareness in us that something's missing, something's lacking, something's not right. We look around us at the world around us. We look at society. We look at culture. We look inward. And we know, all of us know, something is horribly broken and wrong. And so all of us have this deep thirst within us for it to be made right. The problem is, most people look in the wrong direction for what they are thirsty for. Most people look to a source that will never satisfy or fulfill. And that's why they spend their life in misery and despair and emptiness. Everyone's thirsty. 
And the only difference between the saved and the unsaved is that the saved has said, only in Jesus will I find what I'm looking for. Only in Jesus will my thirst be quenched. And so I'm running to Him and I'm taking all He offers. That's the only thing that separates us. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. Why? Because Jesus paid for it with His life. And that's grace. That's why the water of life is free to us. Because it was paid for in full by the Lord Jesus. Verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, which is all of us. We've been hearing the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. That is a very serious and solemn warning that everyone needs to take very seriously. Verse 19, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city which are written about in this book. Verses 18 and 19 remind the reader, every reader, how pure God's prophecy is and how pure His Word is. And therefore, we should view it in that light as very, very pure and something to be kept pure. Verse 20, He who testifies about these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Now, isn't that good news? <laughs> read that again. He who testifies about these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Now, here's a little qualifier. That word soon, that's as God defines soon, okay? <laughs> That's as God defines soon. That's based on His perfect timetable, not our imperfect timetable, and not based on our impatience. We need to keep that in mind. But He is coming soon. That's the promise. And we should say with John, as he hears that, what he says, the last part of verse 20, Amen. Amen. It's it's a done deal. He says, yes, I accept that. Indeed. Absolutely. For sure. I am in agreement with that. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. Do you know this Lord Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to this one? Have you yielded all that you are to him and to him alone? I want to give you an opportunity to actually respond. Uh, I would not do you any justice if after finishing this great book, The Revelation, after talking about all we've talked about, after looking at all we've looked at, last week we, we saw the 
the new Jerusalem in such detail. We've, we've seen it again as we look today. We've talked about this new heavens and new earth, this new experience that, that we will have with God through Jesus Christ and because of Him alone. But it's only possible by making that personal commitment to the one who gave his life for you. So I want to give you that opportunity to respond. I'm going to ask everybody, we're going to do this old school, okay? I'm going to ask everybody just to bow your heads, close your eyes, don't be distracted by anyone or anything, don't be looking at your phone or your watch, just focus your whole attention on everything that you've heard today and on the one who went to the cross on your behalf. The one who made you, the one who created you, became your sacrificial substitute. And He went to the cross on your behalf where He took your sin my sin, all that separates us from God, all all that was and is a barrier between God's holiness and us, all that stands as a barrier between us and the assured reality of this new Jerusalem, this new heavens, this new earth, this new experience that we've been talking about. All that separates you from that is your sin. And that sin was taken care of by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've never done that, then now is the opportunity for you to do so. And what you have to do, what is your responsibility is to personally believe and then to personally commit based on that belief. Where you need to say, I believe that is true. I believe, Jesus, that you are real, that you really did come to this earth, that you really did go to the cross, where you really did die for me. You took my sin, and in exchange, in exchange, you gave me life. I want you to be my personal Savior and Lord. I surrender myself to you. If you have done that, while I've been speaking or even right now, if you have expressed something like that from your heart, I mean sincerely expressed that between you and the Savior, I would like to just have you Raise up your hand and let me know that you've done that. Not, I'm not talking about like you've already done this at one point in your life. I mean, you came in today and you had not ever come to Christ and come to His cross and received what He's done for you there, but now you have. If that's you, I just want to pray for you as you start this walk with Him. Is that anybody at all? If there's anybody that would say, yes, that's me, would you just let me know that? Okay, here's my next question. If you've not yet committed to the Christ on the cross that I have talked about today, the Christ who went to the cross, He died for you, but He didn't stay dead. He rose for you in victory, giving you that promise of eternal life. If you've not yet committed to Him, 
but you want to, and for whatever reason, there's just something holding you back, and you would like me to pray for you personally, I would like to do that. Is there anybody who would say, I'm not a Christian, I've heard what you've said, I, I, just, I just can't make that commitment yet. Would you pray for me that I would? Would you pray for me that I will? Is there anybody who would say, yes, that's me, pray for me, Pastor? Anybody at all? Okay. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promise of eternal life. I thank you for the cross of Jesus. I thank you for the hope of eternal life that is given to us in and through the Lord Jesus. I thank you for the sacrifice of your Son on our behalf. Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit's work, those that are yours already, those that are in Christ, may you do a convicting work in these moments. Cleanse us, I pray, of any iniquity. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness as you promised to do in your word. And Father, if there is anyone here who is yet to be yours through your Son, may now, may this very moment be the moment where they look to you and say, I believe, I believe you sent your Son for me. He went to the cross for me. He took my sin on himself and forgiveness for those sins. It's only through Jesus, and I believe. Thank you for your work on our behalf. Thank you for the cross of your Son. We honor you, we honor him, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.